Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. One of the most remarkable historical trends of the last half century in America has been the emergence of a unique form of political Christianity, which has embedded itself in the Republican Party. Political Christians may prefer being called evangelicals to obscure their conflation of religion and political ideology, but they are not the same as most evangelicals. And today, many evangelical Christians are pushing back against the hard right-wing agenda of Christian nationalism in America. Among them is sociologist Andrew Whitehead, a professor at Indiana University. I interviewed Professor Whitehead in the spring of 2023 while making a radio documentary for the BBC that tried to answer the question, is it political or evangelical Christianity? He had written an excellent data-driven study called Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States. Now, he has written a more personal book about the phenomenon called American Idolatry, How Christian Nationalism Betrays the Gospel and Threatens the Church. But before my conversation with Andrew begins, a reminder, FRDH Podcast is entirely funded by its listeners. Please visit the website goldfarbpod.com and make a donation. And if you have an idea for other ways to fund the podcast, you can contact me there as well. All suggestions greatly appreciated. Now, I began my conversation with Andrew Whitehead by asking the obvious question, why did he write the book and why now? This book really was kind of the culmination of not only my professional journey as a sociologist, just trying to understand how Americans see their social worlds, how they choose to act within them, and and can we explain why they might vote or believe a certain way? And we kept finding in the folks I was working with, you know, I kept finding that the degree to which they believe the U.S. was a Christian nation, like a, a special place in God's design for the world, told us something about how they would vote or view all these different social issues above and beyond their personal religiosity or even their personal political preferences. So that was where I was really fascinated and and kind of really unearthing this nexus between religion and politics for most American uh, people. Um, But then too, I was on this personal journey, having grown up in a very religious area of the country in Northern Indiana where this idea of the United States as a Christian nation wasn't even questioned. It was just the way the world is. Um, it was just accepted. But then, you know, as I grew and, and started to move in different circles and out of that community, you know, it started to raise questions and how this faith that I was raised in and, and personally believed in, how it connected to being an American citizen, and then starting to see those areas where they don't so closely, or or maybe uh, they shouldn't so closely intersect, where I started to see where they could butt up against one another, where being a good American citizen might mean I have to set aside some of these values and beliefs of the Christian faith, or to be a good Christian, I might have to set aside this idea that the U.S. is special and God's plan for the world. And so this book, you know, after the moments that we've kind of lived through with the Trump administration and Black Lives Matter and and just all these kind of social upheavals, you know, as a social scientist wanting to help folks 
gain a language to understand their social worlds. I think, you know, as a part of that work, but now this book was aimed at fellow Christians to try and help them think through the implications of what social science is telling us. And also to show hopefully that there are expressions of Christianity that we can move toward that will allow us to be a part of a common flourishing in American civic life, that it doesn't just have to be about fear and threat of something we wish we could go back to that truly never existed when we read history, but that really has been given to us to create and sustain political power that doesn't serve the needs of not only us, but for others. Um, And so I think in this kind of moment in time, I, I felt urged whether it was part of my faith or just two to being an academic that wants to be engaged in in the common flourishing of of this culture and community that I'm a part of. Um, I think all those were a part of it. And so that was, you know, this book really was kind of the culmination of some of those those journeys together. Well it's interesting because describing it in a very friendly way, very church like yeah. <laughs> way. I mean yeah. you could but I've read it, and yeah. it seems to me more like a call to battle, that mm. within your faith community, Christianity in the U.S. is a pretty broad church, to make the obvious yeah. joke, mm-hmm. and I'll come back to to that in a bit, but it seems to me this is more a call to battle rather than uh, an encouragement to examine one's principles of faith and measure them up against one's principles of being a citizen. Yeah. Well, you know, I didn't want to, in the book, shy away from really heinous histories, right? That Christians, white Christians, especially have been a part of in the United States. I feel as though we have to look clearly and clear-eyed at those histories and what we have collectively been a part of if we're going to help diagnose why we are at the place that we're at um, and then hopefully move forward to something different. And so, you know, with the book, there, there were moments in writing it trying to strike the correct tone where, you know, I want to be encouraging and I hope there's a tone there too that, you know, isn't just, you know, pointing fingers or trying to shame anybody. But I feel like we have to think clearly about what we've been a part of or even complicit in. You know, it may not have been an active choice by many people, but yet were we speaking out? Were we showing that we didn't agree, that we wanted to move in a different direction? And I feel as though we're at a moment where, you know, following the lead of others, especially those who have suffered most um, because they're parts of marginalized communities in the United States. They're they're showing us that we have to actively push in a different direction, or else we'll continue to be carried along, you know, with the the flow of of history and these systems that are in place. And so, yeah, with this book, I think you know, I hopefully it builds, and by the end, you know, there is more of a a direct call that well, I, well, we have work to do. Well, uh, there are several. There's more than one chapter, but there's one very specific chapter about your research showing that mm-hmm. white Christian nationalism, just from your data, not, not just what, what you experience personally from going to church with people or from talking to people who right. also say, I am a Christian. Um, yeah. It just 
completely overlaps with all manner of racist attitudes, but yeah. also overlaps with the history of integration mm -hmm. over the last 60 years. I mean, we're talking on the 60th anniversary of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, right? which is a scheduling coincidence. It wasn't my intention. <laughs> but these chapters are really interesting to me that mm. where I think a lot of people would say, oh, well, you know, the, the wedge issues like abortion and various other things is what caused political evangelical Christianity to get motivated and get involved in the Republican Party and so on. Mm. You or data says something else. Yeah, that was really a, a big part, too, of not only my personal journey, but then this research where when we were trying to understand how strongly Americans embrace this idea of the U.S. as a Christian nation, over and over, it was one of the um, most important predictors of then, too, how they viewed race in the United States. And over and over again, Americans who embrace Christian nationalism were much more likely to hold more racist beliefs and values like opposing interracial marriage or even transracial adoption or believing that police violence toward black Americans is justified in almost every situation, um, capital punishment, and the list goes on. But when we measure Christian nationalism, there's no mention of race in any of those questions. We're just asking if they believe the U.S. should be declared a, US, a Christian nation or that should advocate Christian values. So many Americans, especially white Americans, when they hear this narrative, it's inherently racialized, and that's part of a long history. And that history is so important because it was what allowed much of the um, racial injustice that is a part of our history in the United States to take place, be perpetuated, and then to shapeshift and reform itself. So even when slavery was outlawed, finally. Um, then we have Jim Crow laws. And then when Jim Crow laws move away, when now we have tough on crime policies, but all of these are inherently racialized. And at the forefront of many of those were white Christians who felt as though they needed to defend this idea of the U.S. as a Christian nation. And so growing up white Christian, racial justice issues were always, quote unquote, political Right, But we need to focus as Christians on saving souls. But I see now, and I think what I try to show in the book, is that some of those theologies were created to perpetuate systems that benefited white Christians. And the more that we latch onto those or you know, just limit ourselves to those, we allow for that injustice to continue. And, and that's where we see Christian nationalism as, I think, something that moves against what Christians should be about, which is a common flourishing and a common good. You write about a lecture you attended when you were doing mm. graduate work. Uh, well, it was Randall Balmer That's who came to Baylor. Yeah. And what, 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 it seems like it was one of those intellectual moments. If you're lucky, you get to have more than once right. in your life where, where you say, <laughs> yeah. oh my God, it's like all of this stuff that's been going on in my head. Mm-hmm. Here's a guy, and he summarized it, and he's found the connecting lines amongst all of these things. And now mm. I have a clear idea. So what did he say exactly? Yeah, all, so was Randall Balmer? Yeah, so Randall Balmer is is a noted historian um, of American religion, especially evangelical Christianity. And so he's done a lot of great work. 
one of his kind of through lines of his work is highlighting how the rise of the moral majority and the Christian right uh, in the 70s wasn't in his argument, wasn't due to abortion, homosexuality issues, divorce, any of those things that the the Christian right would have said out loud, but that it was really due um, to their reaction to what they saw as as the overreach of the federal government into uh, Christian life in desegregating their what quote unquote Christian academies were ex- they, those were explicitly created so that their white children wouldn't have to go to desegregated schools. They could just continue to resegregate within a, a quote unquote Christian school. So when um, during the Carter administration, they started to enforce and an, a rule within the IRS that was actually put into place during Nixon's administration, it ended up focusing on Bob Jones University. And Bob Jones University had explicit rules against interracial dating or marriage or who could be a student. And the federal government said, you know, due to this rule that's in place, you can't have federal funding if you continue to use those rules. And so they got really upset. And what Balmer traces and shows is that um, for these political activists who are trying to, to motivate the evangelical community to get into politics and align with them, obviously, um, on the political right. They really were. They latched onto this this idea that the federal government is going to come and tell you how to live your life, and um, we need to be afraid of that. And that's what Balmer argues and, and shows that really activated many white evangelicals into the political right and into the public sphere. Now, other uh, historians and those working in this area, they you know they'll push back on Balmer a bit and say it wasn't just race. And I think that's true. There were a number of these things. There were many evangelicals that were were motivated and activated due to abortion. But I think the underlying truth is there that race is a commonly overlooked and very important part of that larger story. And so that's one that I didn't hear growing up. I wouldn't have known that race was such a big part of it. But then looking back and seeing how little race was mentioned or even a part of anything that was you know part of my faith community growing up. Then it made sense. That's why it was hidden. That's why it wasn't there. That's why we focused on these other things as moral issues, quote unquote, rather than race being a, a moral issue. It was just those are just politics. And as Christians, we shouldn't worry about it. So yeah, in grad school, hearing Randall Balmer share that and then continue to read his work uh, was really influential in helping me make sense of that. And then to see too and connect the dots to why white Christian nationalism is is such a detriment to not only American democracy. If we want to have a you know racially pluralist <laughs> democracy that functions, but also to you know um, the Christian Church and and being about again the common good um, of those around us. It's interesting. Another, another quote in the book that really it actually made me laugh out loud is you quote mm-hmm. Jerry Falwell saying, yeah. <laughs> "Good Christians should not get involved in politics." Yes, yeah. So in the '60s, he's responding to what he sees as. And these are in their words, you know, these agitators, um, which were African-American clergy speaking out against racial injustice like Martin Luther King. And so he had a very famous, uh, Falwell had a famous sermon where he was saying, you know, we should not be involved uh, in politics and basically trying to cut cut the legs out from under those uh, African-American clergy who were, you know, highlighting racial injustice. But then later right? It comes to the fore. And again, race is that through line where now he's saying, well, we better get involved 
Um, and he has a later quote, I think, that comes right after that, where um, essentially saying that the the job of the clergy is to get people baptized and registered, registered, registered to vote, and then out to the polls um, on election day. The hard right in America would have no sense of strategy if it wasn't invented by political opponents and spiritual betters. If African-American clergymen hadn't done exactly that, fought for African-Americans' right to vote, use the church as a safe space to do mm-hmm. that in a part of the country where you know you couldn't meet in somebody's front parlor, mm. but in a church you might have a little space to have a conversation. And then Falwell and and others jump on right. and say, well, this kind of works. And it, yeah. you know, and you will find um when we met in in April, when I went down into Kentucky after we spoke and met mm. with Ryan Gibson, who's a pastor, he's got a, a church in Owensboro, and he brought it up to well, black churches are political. Why can't white churches be? Mm-hmm. And he said, Well, it's an interesting question. What do you think? Yeah, no, I I agree. And I think, you know, what I really try to drive home in the book is that power is a central aspect of Christian nationalism. It wants to protect privileged access to power to benefit the us, quote unquote, the in-group. And throughout U.S. history, that's primarily been white Christian citizens. And so the call isn't that Christians should somehow abdicate you know, any interaction with power or just to opt out. In fact, I think that actually is something that if you're privileged, you can do. But if you you know, are in the crosshairs of of the political moment, you can't opt out, right? You're going to have to be political. And so the answer that I would give to, you know, this clergy person that you met is not that Christians shouldn't be involved in the civil sphere, shouldn't be involved in politics, but that we have to think really clearly and deeply about how in even in Jesus's messages or his life, what he can show us about what power is and how it should be wielded. And when we're looking at the black church, um, especially the civil rights movement, they were focused on on power and increasing their access to power because power is the ability to get others to do what you want them to do despite resistance. But the black church, the civil rights movement, they're focused on power that then opens up opportunities for everyone to have a say in the process, in the democratic process. So the Civil Rights Act or the Voting Rights Act, some of these culminations of the civil rights movement, that that's power applied, right? There are many folks in the US who did not want to allow black Americans to vote or have access to the democratic process, but but that Voting Rights Act demanded that they should. So that is power, coercive power in a sense. But it benefits all. It wasn't as though the black church was arguing that now it's our turn to vote and white Americans can no longer vote. All they're saying is that we should all be able to vote. We want equal distribution of resources or opportunities. The difference for the majority of white you know, Americans as they interact with it, um, with the political process, is basically trying to defend privileged access to power. So when you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like discrimination. And so for many white Americans, um, that's what it's felt like, even though all that's happened is it's allowed others to have a voice and have a say. And so I think some of the the political movements today even are 
are focused on limiting who has access. So it's not even if people should vote, it's why why even allow young people to vote? You know, you'll hear these arguments on the right, not wanting certain young people to have access to it. And I think that is that moves just against any sort of value and integrity of, of believing democracy. So those are the dangers. And that's what I think is the differentiation between being involved in the political sphere. Is it to the benefit of all? And I think Christians should be involved, but to the benefit of the marginalized, those who are being crushed by systems of oppression. I want to just go a little bit deeper for a minute. You know, I'm not a, I'm, I'm Jewish, so, but I, I'm not uninterested in other religions. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've always found difficult to understand about this particular style of Christianity that's evolved in the South and then over the last half century has expanded its reach into all areas of the country, calls itself evangelical, not entirely sure that that's a correct way of designating it, but there you have it, that it's a bit hypocritical when it comes to its understandings of Jesus and his universal call. Now, Mm. Jesus is a Jewish prophet, and he's primarily speaking to the Jews, but leave that aside. I mean, Christianity grows on the idea of the message being universal. Mm -hmm. All people can come to this message. Yeah. All people can be baptized. Mm -hmm. It it doesn't matter where you were born. You can be baptized. You can come into this message, accept this teaching. But the teaching is essentially one of humility and brotherhood. And you reserve your anger for corrupt power. That's it. And somehow, it's so, it seems obvious to me that if you call yourself a Christian, then that means you have to be a soldier for racial justice, or as Martin Luther King said, a drum major for justice. But yeah. you, have, you have to be out front with this. And yet, as, as you've explained, it has become you know, a curtain for white supremacists to hide behind. Hmm. Do, you, do you get angry at the hypocrisy of people who call themselves Christian? Yeah, I think the hypocrisy, you know, of of American Christianity is something that depending on the day and the time might be anger or just deep sadness or cynicism. You know, I've I've felt a lot of different things to that. Um and I have a lot of empathy and sympathy for those who have left because of that. I get it. And there are times where I've had to just you know, step aside as well, because it felt like what I was handed, you know, was a, a bill of goods that that we never really came true on, you know, of of love and neighborliness and care for those who are hurting and suffering. But then when the voices of those who are truly suffering on the margins of our society and being crushed, when we heard those, it was, that was just politics. That wasn't something we should be interested in, or we should go to these other countries to share our faith but if these folks come to our shores, either we're just not interested in them, which was kind of how it was when I was growing up, or now much more xenophobic, right? And fearing and, and sensing this threat of anybody coming here. And so, yeah, there are times where I am angry, upset, cynical. And I think a part of that is is motivation too for this book to um, lay out the the record is to help draw the lines and connect the dots between 
what we know and what I've found in my professional work and how that can speak into this faith that, you know, I still identify with and hope, you know, can support or be a part of a move that, that makes it more welcoming, more loving, more intent on um, serving those who are, are hurting rather than just serving the interests of those who are already in power and trying to protect that power. Where do Catholics figure in the idea of white Christian nationalism? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is a, a interesting and, and rather long history too, where for white Christian nationalism, you know, if we went back a hundred years even, um, Catholics were racialized as non-white in many cases. And so we're were were part of the ire, right, of of those they were trying to defend against because many of them were immigrants. And so folks who embraced white Christian nationalism <clears throat> feared that these folks would would draw Americans away from, you know, the society or harm our culture in some way. But an interesting thing happened is that as immigrants from other countries who could less be less easily racialized as non-white than many maybe European Catholics we see those fuzzy boundaries of who's accepted with into whiteness begin to shift and change. And so now all of a sudden these, you know, white Catholics or these Catholics were now racialized as white and welcomed in because it helped support the political desires of, of this community against, again, these, these immigrants who are going to harm our nation. But you see even up through um, John F. Kennedy's election, white evangelical leaders like Billy Graham, probably the most famous American evangelist, at least in the last century, you know, working behind the scenes to undercut because of, of Kennedy's Catholicism. And then soon after that, you know, things shift and change again when, you know, the civil rights movement is taking place. And now all of a sudden there's, you know, racial issues being brought to the fore. Um, and so now white Catholics are part of this community. And so the rise of the Christian right, the religious right in the 70s, this is when we we finally see many white Catholics who are politically conservative joining forces with white evangelicals who are politically conservative and finding, again, common cause um, despite differences that historically were there. Yeah, but if I if I if I don't go to the Midwest on my next trip to America, but go to Boston <laughs> right. will, will I, and, and I go to Southie, will people there describe themselves as white Christian nationalists or will they still call themselves Roman Catholics? Yeah, I think by and large, they would still call themselves Roman Catholics. And I think many even white evangelicals would, too. I think for me and my work, you know, I want to talk about Christian nationalism but I don't label folks Christian nationalists um, because it's a cultural framework that's very malleable. Um, there's a spectrum that folks exist on and, and they embrace it more or less. And so many American Christians, some of them might embrace it really strongly. And that's what I would try to measure. But I don't really have interest in, in figuring out or sussing out if they're Christian nationalists. But what we've seen is this term Christian nationalism has grown in the kind of vernacular. And we do see some prominent political figures like Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, actively embracing this label, which is an interesting development. I don't think it's a good development, but that still is is quite rare. Even when we, you know, my colleague Sam Perry has recently gathered data and then we can even ask people, do you identify, you know, with this term? And it's it's relatively rare. This isn't something that a lot of people are thinking about or even want to actively embrace. Christian, white Christian nationalism. Yeah, it, calling yeah. themselves that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it just as a journalist who, who 
sees words change meanings all the yeah, time. Right. Uh, it would not surprise me that if someone charismatic yeah. in the political arena said, yeah, I am a white Christian nationalist, then suddenly people would not be afraid to say, yeah, because I'm just like this person who mm -hmm. I admire, who I vote right. for. Do you ever reflect back on the early days of the church? I mean, the re I mean, and I mean the early days of the church. I'm not talking about circuit riders <laughs> in Kentucky and Indiana. I'm yeah. talking about um, when Rome ruled the world. And think about how Christianity's survival is tied up with its ability to negotiate the corridors of Roman power. And that after, I, I know that if I go, if you go to a Christian Sunday school, there'd be lots of stories of martyrs and so on and so mm. forth and being eaten, fed to the lions. Maybe you had some of those stories. Oh, totally. Yeah, we did. But, you know, <laughs> it only happened for the first 50 or 60 years of, of Christianity's existence. Yeah. And then with considerable skill, it has to be said throughout the empire, the early fathers of the Western and then later the Eastern Church cozied up to power and then ultimately took the empire over. It's very interesting how Christians have negotiated with power over the millennia, don't you think? Oh, I do. I think it's fascinating. And and that was a part, too, of my eyes being opened right to this long history of Christians being yeah, seeking and, and wedding themselves to power. And in some senses, you know, I can understand or empathize with, again, when there's fear and a sense of threat, that this is maybe the only way that we can ensure our survival and starting to see that as true, right? If we if we are able to support this person power, get access to power, then our fears will be assuaged, threat is assuaged, we, we will survive. And so I, that's why, too, I think fear and threat are, are a central idol of Christian nationalism, just like power, where when you have that fear, you're much more likely to set aside perhaps some of the more difficult calls that Jesus or you know the Christian faith historically makes on your life. Um, and I think, yeah, the early, the early church in that sense, you know, as it becomes wedded to power and, and a lot of folks look to Constantine as really a hinge moment where now Christianity is part of empire. And ever since then, I think we've been dealing with the repercussions of that and that desire for power. And, and when you have power and fear and threat, that leads to violence. And obviously violence is a key through line of empire throughout history. And so Christianity has been a part of that, reproduced that, supported that, um, in many ways, and and even and that reaches, you know, all the way to today, that power and violence um, and fear and threat, we see the repercussions today, and and so again, I think that's a history that wasn't necessarily taught that I found, and you know, so grateful to um, good histories that folks give us, but have to be a part of. I think American Christians wrestling with how their faith is wedded to power in the U.S. And, and what type of history that's a part of. In the big picture now of America today, mm -hmm. we're a year out from a presidential election. How many people do you think are really of this political evangelical persuasion in America? How much of the electorate, let's put it that way, not people, electorate, yeah. how many people who vote are voting because of what they hear in church? 
Yeah. Well, you know, as we look at the the data on um, exit polling or those who are likely to vote, the voting electorate, you know, white evangelicals or evangelicals even broadly, but white evangelicals, when we look at them in the, the total population, it's under 20% now, like they've continued to decline. But when we look at the voting population, it's generally six, five or 6% higher. So they're a quarter or just above. And so they in some sense, um, you know, punch above their weight electorally. And so in elections, obviously in the US, where it usually comes down to some swing counties and some swing states, that can still have an effect. And we find too, more and more in the past 15 to 20 years, uh, Americans sorting into congregations based on political preference. That that has become a part of it. It's less that you know we're going to worship here because we're Baptists, but we're going to worship here because they speak. You know, they preach the Bible, they preach the Word, which generally is it aligns with the way that I view the world and politics as a part of that. And so I think it is still quite a influential group, and that's going to continue to shift and change. And so with that, you know, we're finding that Americans who strongly embrace Christian nationalism, or even over the last ten to fifteen years, have have shrunk where in 2007 it was around 20%. Um, now, you know, in similar surveys, it's around 14 to 15%. So they are getting smaller. But with that contraction and the size of this group, the identity to them, what places them apart from those around them becomes even more salient. They 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 sense that they're even more embattled. And this is what sets them apart. And that if this country is going to be saved, then we have to do what we can because we're you know defending this Christian nation becomes even more motivating. And so I think even then too, you know, when we look at how social movements operate, they they're powerful in that sense as well. They're they're even more inclined to um, engage because they feel as though this is slipping away. Whereas 50 years ago, more people would have just assumed that the U.S. is a Christian nation. It's less motivating, but now even more so. So I think that continues to really influence politics in the U.S. and and how it operates. If you had to, if you just had to guess, mm-hmm. how how important will this vote be then next year? Oh goodness! Because you know, it, mm-hmm. I'm hearing you say twenty, maybe twenty five percent. I'm yeah. thinking, then what's everybody afraid of? And even yeah. <laughs> taking even taking on board that, you know, yeah. it can it can make the difference in a swing state. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or, you know, and and at the state level, if you're electing a legislature, it can yeah. make the difference. And that's yeah, that's difference. where we see it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, for sure. But, but to me, 25%, I can handle that. But I, I get the sense maybe you're not quite as blase as I am. Well, you know, I think I I look back and and you can take the 2016 election and you can look at it through two different lenses. One is that Trump barely won. I mean, it was like 40,000 votes over five counties across three states. I mean, it was razor thin and he lost the popular vote by a large margin. So the way politics is set up here in the US with the electoral college and those types of things, it does allow a privileged and motivated minority to have an outsized influence. Um, And that I think is where we still have to take seriously the number of Americans that are embracing Christian nationalism because it's associated so so strongly with anti-democratic values. 
and believing that 2020 election was stolen. I mean, those are majority opinions uh, in this group. And so when we look at democracy in the U.S., we have to take into account how it's structured. It isn't just the popular vote. A quarter of the population, yeah, in the popular vote, they can't get close, right? Trump lost by, gosh, I mean, over 2 million votes to Clinton um, in the popular vote. And I think it was even larger. It was, seven, it was 7 million to Biden. Yeah, to Biden. I mean, it isn't close in that sense. But when we look at the Electoral College and how it's structured, uh, there's a big difference there. And when these folks are willing to set aside democracy and overturn right the will of the people in some sense, that's where it gets, I think, really dangerous. And they, again, occupy powerful positions in legislatures, in the court systems um, of the U.S. Those are all a part of this story as well. And so I think that's where there's a lot more hinging on it than it might seem just looking at the the numbers themselves. It's interesting from Jerry Falwell saying, don't get involved in politics to sitting on the bench and ruling as if you're a biblical or what you think a biblical judge. Right. How they would, they're all Pharisees anyway. But listen, um, the last question has to do, again, both, I'm, I'm an outsider, mm -hmm. but I wonder if you feel this as an insider. It does smack of heresy. You have this faith which over 2,000 years has had many different forms. Mm -hmm. But at the core is this really very beautiful idea of what how men should treat each other, men and women should treat each other as mm -hmm. brothers and sisters. Great. And what it's become in America seems to me heretical. And just like we don't have wars of religion anymore, yet at the same time, it seems to me that it has to come to a head sometime mm. that Christians are going to have to really do more than say, that's not really Christianity, that it's going to have yeah. to be much more of a fight to move American society past this logjam that it mm. has been in for decades now. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I I think one of the real things that trip most people up, especially as they begin to confront and oppose Christian nationalism and their Christians is the no true Scotsman fallacy, right? That other Christians who might embrace this stuff, well, they're like, oh, those aren't true Christians. Um, and they can just kind of define them out of existence. But um, I think that is a real mistake because I think Christians have to own all those different expressions and say that this is all a part of our faith tradition. If it's the Ku Klux Klan, you know, of the 1920s with the Jesus save sign above them as they're all hooded or the civil rights movement, there are various expressions of, of the Christian faith. And so we have to own those histories that are, I think, obviously detrimental and have harmed so many people um, and say not that, oh, they weren't true Christians, but look at how Christianity can be abused and used and isn't you know necessarily some sort of silver bullet to keep people from acting in horrible ways. <laughs> Christians can do horrible things and we have to really own that. And I think then try to interrogate, well, where could we go wrong? Where are we going wrong? How are we misusing power? Um, how are we giving into fear and threat? How are we too cozy with violence towards the others um, in our midst? And, and hopefully encourage towards expressions of the Christian faith that move away from that. Because there isn't some sort of 
only true ideal Christianity somewhere out there that we're trying to get back to or anything. It's always been a part of this discussion or these um, arguments about what it is. And so we have to understand that and and realize that and, and hopefully encourage and move towards expressions that don't lead us to put on hoods or to stand silently in the face of oppression, but to then actually engage, defend, leverage our privilege and power towards those who are being crushed and oppressed. Well, good luck with American idolatry. I hope people oh, other than you. regular Sunday churchgoers in the Midwest, your community, give it a read. Andrew, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thanks. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. My thanks to Andrew Whitehead for making time to speak with me. Once again, the name of his book is American Idolatry, How Christian Nationalism Betrays the Gospel and Threatens the Church. And remember to visit the website, goldfarbpod.com, and make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.